Hi there. Thanks for stopping by and welcome to Dharma Punks New York. Every morning at, uh, from Monday through Friday at 8, Kathy does her daily pause meditation. So if you're up bright and early, you might want to join. Kathy has a cool daily pause card deck coming out, which reviews so many of the plentiful insights of somatic experiencing tools. There's some 50 plus cards in the deck. And each has a different photo and a different description of a different way to regulate your nervous system. So if you're interested, you can find it on kathycherry.com. So that's my pitch for that. And if you would like to support my work, everything I do is entirely by donation. Uh, I don't charge for anything. And so, uh, yeah, the counseling and the teaching are supported by kind donation. So if you can give anything, that would be helpful. The Benmo's Dharma Punks with an XNYC and the rest of the info for PayPal and Patreon is on the dharmapunksnyc.com website. So thanks for that consideration. And uh, last week talked about distress tolerance as a way to develop resilience after traumatic and wounding experiences. And today we're going to talk about an entirely different strategy, resilience, and one that allows us to bounce back from difficult experiences in life. And so what I'm going to do is start first with the Buddha's a famous teaching by the Buddha, and it sort of leads us directly into the tool that we'll be exploring. And then we'll have a meditation on the insights in this practice, and then we'll have time for questions. So I hope that all makes sense. One of the most famous teachings of the Buddha is known as the lump of salt teaching. I'm going to teach it kind of from the top of my head. I can sort of remember how it goes, but if you want to look it up, you can find it uh, online. So in the lump of salt teaching, the Buddha says, suppose there's someone who drops a lump of salt into a small bowl of water, like a cup. Would that lump of salt make the water too salty to drink? And the Buddha says, well, yes, it would become because there's not a lot of water. So the salt would suffuse through it or um, would go through the water and the, the, it would no longer taste uh, appropriate. But then the Buddha says, suppose someone drops a lump of salt into a river, and would that salt make the river undrinkable, too salty? And he says, well, of course not. The river contains a huge amount of water, so the lump of salt wouldn't degrade it. And then he goes on to say, so when someone experiences uh, or has bad experiences in life, bad outcomes, it can, in the aftermath, lead them to hellish states, by which he obviously means rumination and frustration and despair, disappointment. While others who have the exact same experiences can go on with far less suffering 
now and in the future. And then he says, those who are resilient, who don't suffer, are those who focus their attention on positive, virtuous acts, uh, core values, uh, wisdom, and so forth. So in other words, their distress isn't defined, or their, their lives aren't defined by painful experiences. Their minds aren't limited to just focusing on the inevitable setbacks and disappointments that will happen in life. While the Buddha definitely teaches that, on the one hand, there will be sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, despair, loss, being stuck with people that are difficult. He also notes that there's a lot of life that isn't that, that life can actually, even in the uh, wake of disappointing experiences, can still be plentiful and enough for people to find true happiness. It's a common reaction after painful events and losses and breakups and injuries and illness and career setbacks to avoid any possible contact with the source of the distress. Um, because if we re-encounter uh, the place where we got fired, the person who broke up with us, the friend that uh, is presently we're having a difficulty with the job that or the workplace that we used to work. If we make contact with the sources of our distress, we experience unpleasant internal states, racing heart, abdominal uh, tension, uh, skin valence, frantic uh, jumpy states of attention, intrusive ideations and all that. So we avoid re turning or even thinking about, we try to suppress and avoid any reflection or any acknowledgement. And we try to just live as if it didn't happen. Or sometimes on the other hand, we can fixate and just focus entirely on the painful event and rehash it. A clinical study uh, cited in works by Dijkstra and Homan show that when people use avoidance coping, it actually makes them feel more vulnerable. They lose their sense of agency, and it actually harms their psychological well-being. Why is this? Why is it that avoiding things or experiences or people, uh, situations that are unpleasant or have been unpleasant in the past, why is avoiding so maladaptive? Well, what it does is it metastasizes. When we avoid situation or people, we actually, it turns out, ruminate more about it. We think more about what we're avoiding than if we simply didn't bother to avoid it and just acknowledged it or went back at, to the neighborhoods where X's used to go and uh, the more we ruminate, we have increasingly disturbing images that are conjured up in our minds. And the more we have increasingly disturbing images, we have greater anxiety. So if we avoid 
um, uh, running into someone we're having a conflict with, actually what will happen is while we're avoiding it, we're going to be thinking and creating scenarios in our mind of what will happen if we do encounter them. And those scenarios are going to be bleak and catastrophizing, and then we're going to become even more anxious. And so over time, a person that was associated with a mild discomfort will be actually quite scary to encounter. The reason is for this, by the way, for those interested in neurobiology is the basal lateral amygdala amongst other regions of the brain like the PAG and so forth. But the basal lateral amygdala is responsible for associative fear learning. Any situation, place, sight, sound, bodily feeling, thought, image that reminds us of a painful event from our past can re-evoke the original states of fear or anger or distress we experienced during the original trauma or wounding experience. It doesn't have to be just the person. Eventually it can be, you know, for instance, if you get, uh, or if one, if someone gets fired from a job and just decides not to go anywhere near that neighborhood where they used to work, eventually going into that neighborhood will become scary. And then maybe going anywhere near that neighborhood will become scarier. And unless we approach the stimuli associated with distress, the anxiety will worsen. It's not in any way exaggerating to note that, for example, cases of agoraphobia and other anxiety-based disorders have skyrocketed since the pandemic. And all of these disorders generally started out as forms of avoidance coping where individuals navigated around situations where at one point they had a panic attack or experienced a really unpleasant event and decided that the best way to move forward was by avoiding re-encountering that situation. And over time, it just spreads and people become more and more closed off to huge uh, arenas of their life. It starts early, actually, avoidance coping. Uh, a Yale Child Study Center found that parents uh, quite frequently accommodate their child's anxiety by allowing them to avoid anxiety-provoking situations. And what the Yale Child Study Center found, fascinatingly, was that instead of relieving anxiety, accommodating, the parents accommodating the child's anxiety made their anxiety worse. So helping the child avoid going to, I don't know, a hall of mirrors or a place where the child was scared or allowing the child to avoid uh, a day at school where they were, uh, or whatever, uh, that actually backfires as a strategy. Large numbers of studies, though, show that there is a active mechanism in healing that allows people to develop resilience after really painful events. And this active mechanism is the imaginal exposure. Imaginal means you imagine re-encountering 
the distressing or the person or the place that's scary, but we reframe it in a wider, larger, episodic, goal-seeking agenda. In other words, we don't just fixate on rehashing or visualizing what would happen in re-encountering the difficult person or place or activity. We cast it in a much larger narrative. And the studies showed that the amygdala activity declined, which is, the, of course, um, is the salient section of the thalamus, thalamus, sorry, the, the um, midbrain that uh, adds emotional valence to uh, stimuli, negative fear very often. And meanwhile, the part of the, the anterior cingulate that allows us to work through fear increases. So um, this process is all part of tonight's topic, which is going to fall under the general rubric of what's now frequently called narrative exposure therapy. Uh, it's a kind of elaboration on a very old strategy that we will we will see is embedded in our culture, early Buddhist teachings, and um, what's most important is that it works. So deeply wounding experiences must be attended to. We have to grieve and we have to talk about the painful events that have occurred. But at the same time, the epicenter of this process is that painful events should not define us. We can still experience joy, meaning, uh, growth, vitality while we're healing after in the aftermath of a breakup or a loss or an injury or an illness. And one way this is done is by changing the stories we tell about our painful experiences so they no longer define us. In other words, after someone gets a major illness or a, experiences a traumatic injury or car crash or loses an attachment figure or goes through a divorce, it's very tempting to allow one's attention and one's narrative faculties to simply retell or focus on the event itself, but not to frame it in a much larger story. Uh, so this larger story is actually filled with um, goals and um, reframed with uh, a kind of larger uh, thing we're seeking. And so the painful event no longer defines us. And it's just a chapter in the book of our life. It's not the title in the book of our life. My life, it, you know, wouldn't be the, the, if I wrote an autobiography, it wouldn't be titled about the uh, difficult experience I had in the aftermath of 9-11, where I had all these anxiety attacks, and it was extremely painful. Um, I would frame my story in a much larger scope. And so in reframing 
life experiences, we're taking unpleasant events and we're not making them the main attraction. They're just one part of a chapter in our life. We look at some of the famous structural analysis of quests by people like Northrop Fry and Claude Levi-Strauss. A common theme that's baked into the myths of all of various cultures is the idea that for a hero to go on some quest, at one point they have to face certain defeat, unassailable odds that are stacked against them. And what happens at this moment where the hero is tempted to give up, something reminds them of the goal that they're seeking, the, the holy grail, as it were, or the, the meaning for all the hardship. When the Buddha, uh, after he left his home in Kapalivatsu, where he was surrounded by wealth and unending uh, comfort, he went into the jungle around, I guess, Varanasi, I believe it was, and he practiced with other um, spiritual mendicants, and he became so serious about his practice and, the, and his meditation that he cut out everything. He wasn't allowing himself to even eat or sleep comfortably. He was facing starvation and he wasn't achieving enlightenment. And then there was one epic moment where facing defeat in his quest of enlightenment, he remembered that the ultimate goal wasn't suffering or the ritual of practice. The ultimate goal was to end suffering and that that would require reframing his practice, reframing all the hardships he went through. And instead of refraining from eating, he started to eat enough to help him, uh, to help him live a comfortable, a healthy life. And from that reflection or being reminded of the ultimate goal, he succeeded in his enlightenment. It's like the epicenter of the, uh, the Buddha's life. So in the aftermath of really painful events, we do this by focusing attention on the brave choices we've made in the course of our life, the accomplishments that we feel proud of. And from those choices that when we look back on our life, we think, yeah, I'm grateful I decided to do that. I'm grateful I put in the effort to achieve that. I'm grateful that I traveled there or that I stuck with this friendship or that I prioritized this. Um, then we distill core values that very often we overlook when we tell the stories of our setbacks and the painful events. Um, we look for actions and values in our life that express our highest sense of self. And from that, if I know that for me, creating art, spending time with loved ones and friends, sobriety, volunteerism, art, travel, music, meditation, uh, teaching, uh, and so forth have brought me 
a, a broader scope in my life, I have so much more resilience to frame painful experiences in my life. And we turn these core values into goals that add space around the painful experiences or the whatever frustrations or setbacks we're facing to create a resilient identity. So um, for me, it's like visualizing a growth opportunity as the consequence of anxiety to tell to in the aftermath as i said of 9 11 i was experiencing some severe panic attacks and it was all but impossible for me to uh to function in life i do take time off from work and it felt like there was nothing more to my life than the anxiety that had crept upon me. And then fortunately, I remembered the bliss and the peacefulness that my spiritual practice had provided, especially during the early years of sobriety around 94, 95, 1996, those that era where meditation was so and connecting in spiritual practice had created such a sense of strength that I realized that I could reframe the anxiety and the panic I was experiencing as the kind of epic moment in the quest where I would focus on going back towards spiritual, the spiritual life and towards a Buddhist practice as a way to create a far greater complexity to my story than simply, you know, what life I was living at the time, which was somebody who worked in as an art director uh, in an ad agency was experiencing panic attacks. I reframed my life in terms of a quest for some kind of spiritual meaning, sobriety, uh, finding a role in the world that would be helpful for others. It's essential for us to experience our identity. Our sense of self is more varied than our wounds, than our disappointments, than the times we were overwhelmed. Because we are complex beings. We, have, we are manifold beings. And when we allow our minds to fixate on daunting times or uh, unpleasant conflicts, then what happens is we turn our backs on the complexity of who we are, as well as all the aspirations and goals that are still available to give our life meaning. It's a kind of um, almost a default setting of the brain to constantly revert to thinking about uh, disappointments, wounds, and traumas, rather than to cast it in a far more resilient picture. Um, in defining and refocusing on what really matters to us, we reorient ourselves towards activities that 
is encapsulate our core values. So for example, if you're in therapy, this would mean spending less time in therapy talking on about the pains and setbacks. I mean, you do have to talk about them, but spending less time focusing on the disappointments and the interpersonal struggles and focus at least as much time bringing attention to the goals and core values that have given your life meaning. When you look back on your life, what do you, what do I feel most proud of? So uh, I, my mom uh, at one point was diagnosed with MS. And at the beginning of it, she was pretty fixated on it and she was overwhelmed and, uh, but she didn't give in to learned hopelessness. She actually set for herself an agenda to continue traveling and continue writing and creating art. And it provided her with resilience. She wound up living 40 years with it. And actually, uh, she died at 80, but that was a lot longer lifespan than what she could have originally anticipated because of this focus on uh, values clarification. It allowed her to detach also from what other people might have done, a reliance upon maladaptive behaviors. When people are living in the aftermath of a setback, they can focus on just totally getting rid of everything that reminds them of the painful event. And they can binge on food or drugs or alcohol or spending or uh, fixation and dating emotionally unavailable people. But all of those strategies, of course, fail. If we know what our purpose is, though, it allows us to remain balanced. And that now a setback is just a part of a journey, not the definition of our life in and of itself. Um, uh, so, again, when having a purpose doesn't mean we're not going to experience setbacks, old age, sickness, and death, we'll have just as many challenges as anyone else. We might have more or slightly less, but we'll have uh, really unpleasant, what the Buddha called dukkha dukkha experiences. But a sense of having core values and a sense of purpose, uh, goals that we aspire to, um, mitigates the emotional consequences of the stressors. If after a gathering with friends I've been looking forward to is canceled, it's up to me to find something or re reflect back on that which gives my life um, real deep meaning and how can I turn that experience into just part of a larger journey. Adjacent to focusing attention on our core values is a dedication to increasing rewarding experiences and activities just in general. We're not looking for things that are numbing addictions 
we're looking for activities that allow us to not only be with the painful aftermath of disappointments in life, but also remind us of things that really matter to us. So it could be uh, in the aftermath of a breakup or divorce or even an illness, taking a walk by a river, a slow one, or connecting with other people. Or it could be going to see a movie in a theater with a friend or drawing, even if we can't draw. Any activity that even one that we don't, we're not trying to do it well, we're simply trying to enact some behavior that not only soothes us, but at the same time allows us to, reminds us of that which brings real meaning and value to our life. The more soothing rather than numbing experiences and activities we engage in will create a greater space around life's challenges and we'll spend less time trying to avoid painful memories and focus more on reprioritizing our efforts. So it's all part of a package. So to reflect on our values as opposed to ruminating on unpleasant themes and experiences, some of the questions that are most important is, what matters most to me? What inspires me? Who do I care about? Sometimes even what makes me really angry and what makes me experience joy can clarify what's really important to us. What choices that I've made do I feel most grateful for? And what experiences do I feel most grateful for? Uh, one question I really like is when do I feel that I'm living my living life my own way? So that's a question about what feels most authentic to us. When do I feel I'm living my life my own way? So amidst these reflections, we find a goal or a um, we, we re-encounter what is our core values. And from those core values, we create a goal that clarifies not just what the, that not only diminishes the importance of setbacks, but also clarifies why we're going through this trudging through life, sometimes just showing up for work or obligations or responsibilities, if we don't have this higher meaning or purpose, then it can feel like that's what our life is, and we no longer feel ownership of our life. So we're, in short, placing the setbacks is just one more episode in a quest to achieve something that's of real value to us. So that's what we're going to do in our meditation. We're going to get really uh, calm and relaxed. And then we're going to reflect on and try to unearth what these core values are for each of us. And then we'll see how these core values can be 
turned into a goal that now uh, diminishes the sensed importance of the painful experiences in our life. Oh, that makes sense. Uh, and if it didn't, I'll see you next week and I'll try to make more sense. So um, what we're going to do now is we're going to practice uh, this reflection. So what I'd uh, like to ask is that you find a really comfortable seated position and you can turn off your monitor or swivel out of the screen or you can do what you like. If you like to be filmed while you're meditating, it's not something I particularly enjoy, but I have to do it. So find a really comfortable setting. Mm. I'm going to make my back a little more relaxed and straight. So just bring your attention to your internal experience. And first, sometimes it's just helpful to find the sensations of breathing. If the sensations of breathing are soothing or neutral, and just find some movement in your body that indicates when you're breathing in. And also clarifies when you're breathing out. So feeling this perhaps gradual expansion of energy upwards with the inhalation from the belly to the chest to the base of the throat and then the slight release where the muscles release the diaphragm begins to contract and the move of movement of energy goes down from the chest back to the belly. When I'm sitting upright, I very often feel the in-breath of like my body inflating upwards and back like a balloon. And then when I breathe out, I can feel this subtle caving forward a little bit. If um, the sensations of the breath are uncomfortable or not soothing for you, no matter, find any other internal 
sensation. It could just be feeling the warmth of your eyes and the eye sockets. Feeling the warmth, the palms of your hands. You clasp them together, they might feel warm. Feeling the contact sensations with the chair or the whatever you're seated upon. And if you are aware of the breath, try to cultivate a breath that is pleasant enough that you can follow it moving through the entire breathing body. So feel all of the breath energy as much as you can suffusing through your body. This is the core foundation of what's called the Anapanasati practice, one of the oldest meditations in the Buddhist canon. Mindfulness of breathing in and mindfulness of breathing out. To broaden your attention to just your internal experience as that applies to not just body sensations, but also feelings. Feelings are the shifting embodied changes that occur to everything that's 
happening in the world around you, or maybe any thought you're having creates feelings. So feelings fall under the category of comfortable and uncomfortable or neutral. So right now, do you feel comfortable or uncomfortable or pretty much neither? And how do you know that? And also, what mood are you? Happy, sad, tired, excited, curious, angry, frustrated, neutral. Feelings are largely embodied, whereas there are changes in muscular tension in the abdomen and breathing and tightening and relaxing of skin that creates an overall sense of uncomfortable or uncomfortable, as I think, or as I said here. And uh, moods are states of the mind filters that influence our perceptions. So whatever you're feeling internally, the goal is just to accept it as much as you can without trying to resist or add any story about it. So the question we're just asking is, what am I feeling or experiencing right now internally? And can I accept it, be with it, welcome it?
So as part of our practice tonight, to reflect on core values, I'm just going to offer some reflections and try not to in any way have elaborate cognition, just allow whatever answers just naturally present themselves without any we might call expository thinking or analytical thinking. So what matters most to me When I'm looking for a friend, what do I look for? What do I really care about? What matters to me in others that I value? What choice or choices that I've made in my life do I feel most grateful for? Or what experiences? If I look back, what can I point to that creates a positive sense of self?
What activities create a sense that I'm living life my own way? When, one way to reflect on this is in what way has your apple fallen furthest from the tree in the sense that you've cultivated interests, growth choices that are so very different than what was perhaps important to your family system and the people around you while you were growing up. Where did you strike out on your own in a good way? So whatever values have emerged, see now if you can create a simple narrative where you re-encapsulate some disappointment as simply part of a journey towards re-experiencing these core values. How can these core values provide a kind of expansiveness or a greater sense of identity for you? Or perhaps another reflection would be knowing these core values. What can I seek, seek out next in life? It would be most expressive of this insight.
So at this point, I'm going to bring this meditation reflection to a close so that we can return to connecting with each other and use this upcoming time for thoughts, questions, and so on. So take your time and just bring your meditation to close.